Hi, I'm Jason. And I'm Scott. Welcome to Skip Don Shuffle, a podcast where we delve into overlooked songs by popular artists. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at Pink Floyd's song, Childhood's End, off of their 1972 album, Obscured by Clouds. Scott was the best man at my wedding, and in his speech, he revealed to me that we became friends despite my love of Pink Floyd. <laughs> it was it was a major problem. You know, I was thinking, like, I really like this guy. He's really nice, and we have great taste in music together, and we talk really well and everything. But I don't know his Pink Floyd thing. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I, it's, it's weird, and uh, I'm sure this is going to come up a lot throughout the episode. But it's weird being or feeling like the one guy in the world. Well, let, let me let me clarify that the one musician guy in the world, the one mm. music fan in the world who doesn't like Pink Floyd. And you know, I feel like there are people out there that might not like Pink Floyd, but they don't really. I guess they don't understand why they don't like Pink Floyd, you know, like they'll just be like, I don't like it because it doesn't sound like the music that I like. Maybe they only listen to classical or they only listen to hip hop or, or whatever. So they're just like automatically, I don't like Pink Floyd. Whereas I like a lot of bands that most people who like Pink Floyd also like, you know, mm. like your, your Genesis or your King Crimson. Or, yeah, it's, or, it's, it's, yes, it's not, or, it's not because you're not a prog rock fan yeah, or, not, or yeah. yeah, it's not that it's too dense for me. It's too complicated or it's too, you know, the songs are too long or too weird. It's none of that. It's just that, I don't know. I just, there's, just there's something about them that just makes me not like them and it's interesting because i was you know we were, we were i was prepping for this episode by listening to this album obscured by clouds and also you know listening to some other pink floyd records that were around that time i also re-listened to their first album which we're going to talk about is is extremely different from the previous uh, for them from the following ones and you know i was i was expecting or maybe not expecting hoping is better the word that that I was going to be like there was oh my gonna god there's going to be a revelation yeah and- <laughs> now I get it now I get it and and it didn't happen whereas it's funny because we did an episode on the doors uh pre, you know oh, a, a yeah. while ago and and, 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 and I did and it, yeah. you know I said to myself you know what I didn't like the doors going into this and now I won't I'm probably not a huge fan or anything but I definitely like them a lot better at the end of our recording that episode than I did previously whereas I don't think that's going to happen <laughs> with Pink Floyd <laughs> so. Let's head into the very long and complex history of this band. I'll, I'll try to be somewhat brief, but you know things get things get kind of muddled. So you know, don't don't hold me to the most detailed history of this band. But if you're unfamiliar with Pink Floyd's history and especially the the earlier stuff before they became kind of the big huge rock band um, that we know them as, so you might find some of this info you know interesting or enlightening for the for the more casual fan. Just the beating of your heart Just one man beneath the sky Just two ears, just two eyes You said sail across the sea Love past thoughts and memories Pink Floyd formed in London in the mid-60s 
1963, bassist Roger Waters met drummer Nick Mason while they were studying together at a university. They put a band together with three other members and picked up Richard Wright shortly after forming. He would go on to be Floyd's keyboardist, but he plays rhythm guitar in this band, which is called Sigma Six. They played covers of popular music in Britain at the time and composed some originals. Then in 1964, Sid Barrett joins the band, which is then called T-Set, as a guitarist, and he later becomes the frontman and singer after other members of the band leave. By 1965, we have who would be known as the original lineup of Pink Floyd, with Sid Barrett as lead singer and guitarist, Roger Waters on bass, Richard Wright on keyboards, and Nick Mason on drums. The Pink Floyd name comes from two blues artists that Sid Barrett had records by, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. They caught the attention of various businessmen and investors that helped support the band in terms of musical equipment and especially lighting effects that the band would become pretty well known for. They're playing shows around London and to avoid being too repetitious in their sets and to extend the time that they needed to reach to fill a full set, they play a lot of lengthy and experimental jams. But Barrett is busy composing songs for the band and the sets are filling up with more originals. They signed their first record deal with EMI in 1967. Through that label, they released their first two singles, Arnold Lane, and later, See Emily Play. Emily tries, but misunderstands. She's often inclined to borrow somebody's dreams till tomorrow. There is no... That psychedelic sound they had would continue on their debut album, which also came out in 1967, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. If you're a casual Pink Floyd listener and only know like the big hits that they play on the radio, there is probably nothing from The Piper at the Gates of Dawn that you will recognize because it's it's not even it's almost like a completely different band. It's so crazy and psychedelic and weird, much more a product of the psychedelic 60s rather than like the prog rock 70s sound that Pink Floyd eventually becomes most known for later. That debut album was pretty successful, hitting number six on the charts, and as they toured around the UK, they were drawing decent-sized crowds, but lead singer Sid Barrett was becoming increasingly unreliable. It's around this time that Barrett starts to regularly take LSD and was also having mental health issues. If you see him on TV appearances at this time, he seemed to stare off into space or was unable to answer interviewers' questions, and eventually the band had to start canceling gigs because he wouldn't be able to perform on stage. The band brings on a new member, David Gilmore, as a guitarist. Gilmore and Barrett actually knew each other. They had gone to school together, played together a little bit, and at one point had actually hitchhiked through the south of France, kind of busking for money along the way. The plan was to keep Sid as part of the band, but if things got worse, then he'd stick around just as a songwriter rather than a performer since he was writing most of the band's material. But things would get much worse with Sid Barrett. The band returns to the studio and records A Saucer Full of Secrets in 1968, Barrett pens Jug Band Blues for the record. At this point, though, the descriptions of Barrett are basically that he's gone, mentally speaking. So he ends up being convinced to leave the band. It's here that Waters starts to write more songs, like Let There Be More Light, which was released as a single in the U.S.
okay. The album did well, hitting number nine on the charts there and had favorable reviews. Although, as we mentioned, a lot of reviews are mixed. This was kind of an either you love this band or they're making weird noise and this isn't music. <laughs> In 1969, the band is quite busy. They recorded a soundtrack to the film More. They also released Umaguma, a double album that has live tracks on the first LP and then experimental tracks on the second LP. Despite the unconventionality of that approach, it hit number five in the UK and number 74 in the US, which was the first Floyd album to chart there. They also contributed tracks to the Michelangelo Antonioni film Zabriskie Point. The next year, 1970, they released Adam Hart Mother, which would be their first number one record in the UK. The single from that record was Summer 68. Lacking direction on what to write and record next, they experimented quite a bit in the studio for their sixth album, 1971's Metal. The lengthy period of recording, punctuated by live performances, gave the band a chance to work on some of that material on the road, such as the iconic track from that record, Echoes. This is the album that really cements the Floyd sound, distinguishing it from the heavier psychedelic earlier period into lush keyboard arrangements and Gilmore's signature Strat sound that most listeners, if you throw on any of the later Pink Floyd albums, you'll kind of immediately recognize. The lead single was the mostly instrumental One of These Days, which features an echo effect on the bass. And this effect is heard through a lot of their work, particularly on Gilmore's guitar. This record is a lot more cohesive and refined. For lack of a better description, it sounds a lot prettier and more beautiful than anything they had recorded to that point, which if you throw on any of the earlier stuff, there's some you know messy guitar parts in there and, and stuff that almost sounds like it was recorded poorly. Yeah, it's really interesting to think that we've got from 1967, they released their first album, and then it's 1971 before they release what we will consider like the first real Pink Floyd album, like the first album that sounds like what most people associate when they think of the Pink Floyd sound. So really you've got like four years of, just, of albums just around, yeah, that trying aren't to figure really, it out, yeah. yeah, that most like, most like casual Pink Floyd fans really don't even need to listen to because it's not going to, I guess it might give you a better perspective of like how the band came to where they are. But I don't think you throw one on and be like, I'm going to throw out the rest and this is like, <laughs> and this is my new favorite. Yeah, yeah I don't yeah. think so. <laughs> The metal does well, it's well received by critics, does well commercially, but the band is still struggling to make it big in the US. Uh, a lot of this is attributed partly to their album-oriented nature of their songs, a lot of lengthy tracks, and also the promotion done by the label Capitol Records was also partly to blame. In 1972, Floyd records yet another soundtrack to the film, La Vallée, basically The Valley. That record is also called Obscured by Clouds, but that's the album that we're going to talk about with today's episode on Childhood's End, um, so we'll revisit that later. But that record did have one U.S. single, which was Free Four. The memories of a man in his old age are the deeds of a man in his prime. 
Shuffle in the gloom of the sick room And talk to yourself as you die and Life is a short, warm moment And death is a long, cold Let me just say that Obscured by Clouds was written and recorded very quickly, so it doesn't quite have the same scope and sound as metal, but Floyd would quickly get back there with an album that everyone probably knows, 1973's The Dark Side of the Moon. This might be the most famous album of all time. Yeah, I I, I mean, (laughs) I feel like you could talk to anybody and be like, not only could you say like Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, like they would actually probably be able to tell you what's on the cover of the album. They'd be able to describe, mm, yeah. you know, the the, the, the triangle, prism, yeah. the prism with the light coming in, the rainbow coming. I feel like that's the the height of fame for for that record. Like it's just insane. Yeah. So I, I I'll I'll kind of gloss over it because I don't even know what to say because probably everyone yeah everyone's familiar with this one. But here's one of the singles, which is the track Money. So after the monumental success of that album, even even to this day, (laughs) the band began playing new material on the road in 1974, debuting three new songs. One of those songs would end up being Shine On You Crazy Diamond, which was a tribute to former bandmate Sid Barrett. The band at this time is struggling to find inspiration. Waters eventually found a direction in the mood that the band was in, growing apart and reflecting on this idea of absence, particularly, you know, this band member who was so instrumental to to getting this band together and then disappearing. This would lead them to create what is considered one of their strongest records, 1975's Wish You Were Here. The album also shared their increasing disillusionment with the music industry, as heard on the track Have a Cigar, which featured guest vocalist Roy Harper and also served as the only single from the record. The two other new songs that the band had been working on during their live shows, Reaving and Drooling and You Gotta Be Crazy, appeared on their next record, 1977's Animals, as Sheep and Dogs, respectively. The animal theme was inspired by George Orwell's famous novel Animal Farm, which anthropomorphized animals to explore different classes of society. The band is beginning to fight at this time. Roger Waters had taken over as the only lyricist for the band, And at the time, royalties were divided by how many songwriting credits different members of the band had. And considering they're putting out albums with only five tracks on them, um, there's a lot of fighting about who's getting money and who's getting credit for doing things. Um, So, for instance, uh, keyboardist Richard Wright received no writing credits on any of the songs. And with Waters being that main creative force, obviously, you know, that's creating a lot of tension within the band by having, you know, someone there being like, you do this and you're not doing this. And, you know, I'm the writer, so we're putting this on. 
And I'm making all the money. Yeah, and I'm <laughs> and I'm making all the money from it. So around this time, too, the other band members are kind of distracted with other things. Gilmore had just become a father for the first time, and he's feeling kind of marginalized and frustrated by the band. And the band is also getting bigger, so they're playing these like huge stadiums and still doing these kind of exhaustive tours. So they finished their largest tour at that time, and Gilmore really felt that the band had essentially just peaked. At one of the shows on the tour, Waters got so angry with fans that he actually spit on them. He would later use the incident as inspiration to explore his growing dissatisfaction with fame and increasing feelings of alienation to compose 1979's The Wall. Using his own experiences and former bandmate Sid Barrett once more, The Wall was a concept album that followed an exhausted rock star Pink, who begins to isolate himself from the world, creating a symbolic wall around himself. Pink remembers his childhood, including the death of his father in World War II, which waters his own father had died in the war, his overprotective mother and abuse at school, all of which play a role where he is now emotionally in his life. And those little pieces that cause him to build this wall are expressed best in the song Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2. It's during the recording of The Wall that the band really starts to break down as a functioning unit. Wright was recording his keyboard parts at night so he wouldn't be in the studio with Waters and Gilmore during the day. Even Gilmore was kind of growing frustrated with Wright's working style and also his lack of contributions uh, to the record. Wright would actually quit the band after a confrontation with Waters but remained with the band as a touring musician to basically support The Wall tour. All I can think of is imagine being a professor somewhere and then getting fired and they're like, you can come back and teach one class maybe. Or like as a or, sub, or, yeah. you're, or a substitute as a substitute. Yeah, yeah, you're a yeah. substitute now. Yeah. So, so pretty crazy. The tour was grandiose with a huge wall on the stage, giant puppets to represent the nightmarish characters in the story. This tour did not do very well financially because of how elaborate their stage setup was. So they're losing a bunch of money. They're also losing money because the band members all are now traveling independently to the gigs and staying in separate hotels since they can't stand each other. But the album does do exceptionally well. I, I read a story at some point when we were doing research for this that they would arrange their tour buses. So each band member had their own bus that they would sleep on and, you know, get ready for the gig or whatever. They would arrange the buses in a circle with the doors all facing the opposite direction so that at no point coming in or out of their van would, you, would, you have to would, see, yeah. would they have to see each other. I mean, that's like, wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've never hated somebody that much. Like, I, I, I've, there are people in my life that I'm like, I would be all right if I never saw that person again. But wow, like that's, wow. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's where the band is at right now. <laughs> but the band returns to the studio, mine is right now, um, to create 1983's The Final Cut. The album was originally planned to be a soundtrack to accompany the feature film version of The Wall that was coming out, but Waters abandoned that idea and made a more political record to criticize the UK's role in the Falklands War with Argentina. Gilmore didn't like the direction the band was headed in, in terms of politicizing things, and he was also bothered about the quality of the material, saying to Waters, if these songs weren't good enough for The Wall, why are they good now? Because they were rehashing earlier material. The album was successful, but nowhere near what their 70s output achieved in terms of sales. 
They didn't tour to support the record, and band members began working on solo material at that time. Waters decided to quit Pink Floyd in 1985, and he also sued the band and to prevent them from using the Pink Floyd name. I won't get into any details, but it is an incredibly messy thing. Um, yeah, just, it, it, imagine <laughs> the most messy divorce that you've ever heard of and multiply that by four dudes. <laughs> and you've got how messy this, this breakup was. But Gilmore decided to continue the band anyway, and in 1987, they released A Momentary Lapse of Reason. Other musicians were hired for the record, both to partner in songwriting and also to play on the album. Nick Mason, the drummer, was so out of practice that he mainly just worked on sound effects and drum machine parts. And Wright was playing with the band again. He wasn't officially a member, I think, due to some legal reasons. But he also didn't really add much to the record since Gilmore had already brought on these other musicians to record parts and he was out of practice too. But that record did much better than the final cut. And during the tour to promote A Momentary Lapse of Reason, the band's fallout with Waters continued uh, as they toured with the Pink Floyd name and they would even fight over the use of onstage props during that time that they had used on earlier tours. In 1994, they would release The Division Bell, which was a much more collaborative effort than the last record. A song from that is What Do You Want From Me? That tour to support their album would be their last tour. In 2005, for the Live 8 Benefit concert in London, Waters, Gilmore, Wright, and Mason reunited as Pink Floyd and played a short set. While there was a lot of money offered and obviously public interest in more shows, the band members weren't open to the idea. Wright died of cancer in 2008, and then in 2014, Gilmore and Mason regrouped and released The Endless River as a tribute to Wright. It revisited a lot of the material that was recorded during 1994's The Division Bell, and it's nearly entirely instrumental. Only one track has vocals and is generally viewed by both the band and fans as the final Pink Floyd studio album. So now we're going to travel back to 1972 and talk a little bit more about the album Obscured by Clouds. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Right about now, in most podcasts, you'd be hearing an ad for something, uh, but we are trying to keep Skipped on Shuffle ad-free, and the way we're going to be able to do that is through Patreon. Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash skippedonshuffle. Any donations go to support the costs associated with running this podcast. Early on when I started listening to Pink Floyd, I had gotten the box set Shine On, which at the time I thought was way more complete of a box set of Pink Floyd albums than than it really was. It kind of collected sort of the 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 best albums that they had had, concentrating mostly on that that 70s output. 
um, which was the height of their success. So for a long time, I thought that Metal was the album directly for before Dark Side of the Moon. So it was kind of interesting to know there was a record in between and and listen to this one, especially because thematically and structurally, it, it makes a lot more sense for where some of the, the themes and ideas ended up appearing on Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like if, if like, I, I once, you know, like we said at the top of the episode, I am not a big Pink Floyd fan at all, but I've, I've heard Dark Side of the Moon a million times because everybody's you heard can't Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, you just walk down a college dorm, you know, at at two in the morning and you're going to hear somebody playing dark side <laughs> of the moon. Uh, you know, so, so I, I, I know dark side. I know a lot of the, the, the themes and I, you know, I know about the whole thing where it's like, Oh, it's sometime if you play it along with the wizard of Oz, it sinks <laughs> up like all the stuff that surrounds dark side. I know all about, and I know about metal because, you know, there's some songs on there that actually achieved like some sort of notoriety with the pink Floyd audience. And, and not, not not even just the hardcore Pink Floyd fans, but just like the more casual fans as well. But there's nothing from Obscured by Clouds. Like, I mean, I feel like I knew the album's name because I used to work at a record store and I would see it on the list and I'd be like, oh, that's a that's a cool album name, you know, like whatever. But but yeah, but I feel like you could skip over Obscured by Clouds. If you decided I want to listen to the Pink Floyd canon from beginning to end and hear the band progress, I feel like skipping over Obscured by Clouds wouldn't, wouldn't detract from that journey yeah, because it, it's more, it, it feels to me more like an album of just like, I don't know, like demos that they were putting together to try and figure out what direction they wanted to take the band in with dark side of the moon. So it, it's, it's, I guess it's an interesting, it's an interesting view into the creative process, but it's by no means like an essential listen. Yeah. It, it's, it's, if you're a fan and, you, I, I, I mean, I found for me that this album was interesting because there's some more acoustic work. The band is really, you can hear that the band is more collaborative on this record. Richard Wright sings a couple tracks on this record. It's also the last time David Gilmore would write lyrics for a Pink Floyd album until all the way in, in 1987 when A Momentary Lapse of Reason comes out. So th- this is a band where the the they're all working together and all equal partners before that would dramatically change when they did Dark Side of the Moon, where Roger Waters takes over as lead songwriter and basically the band's kind of de facto leader. So it's interesting to hear what everyone sort of brings to the table in Pink Floyd on this record. And I'd also mention, structurally, it, it this record makes more sense coming before Dark Side of the Moon because this album has six songs and four instrumentals. And I really feel like only Dark Side of the Moon and maybe a bit of the wall, but the wall is kind of an outlier being like more, I uh, not it's like, a, it's not a, like it's the only concept album that Pink Floyd has, yeah. but it's a bit more of a narrative story than, than kind of just being thematically connected. It's also a double album. So they have yeah, much yeah. more room to kind of like, you know, yeah. So um, similarly on Obscured by Clouds, comparing it to Dark Side of the Moon, they kind of separate out the songs from the instrumental parts in terms of, you know, if you're looking at the the track listing, which, you know, on, on records previous to this and on other ones, those instrumental passages are just wrapped up along with the song. Um, or on something like Shine On Your Crazy Diamond, you know, they'll say, you know, parts one through, you know. Right, whatever. yeah. But but yeah, I, uh, so it, it's kind of interesting to, to hear to hear this record. Um, the way that David Gilmore describes the recording of this album, again, this is for, you know, a soundtrack. He basically just says, we sat in a room, wrote, recorded, like a production line. I think they did everything in a matter of a few weeks, 
no more than a, a month of recording. Um, so it's interesting to hear what these songs sound like, knowing that they're that they didn't have the time to work on them and they're not nearly as polished as a lot of the other Pink Floyd stuff that you know we mentioned from from basically here on out. So today we're going to talk about Childhood's End, which is written and sung entirely by Gilmore. The title comes from a novel by science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke. You probably know him for writing the film 2001 A Space Odyssey with filmmaker Stanley Kubrick. The book was published in 1953 and follows aliens that invade Earth with ships that hover all over all the major cities on the planet, a la Independence Day. What? That wasn't an original thought? Oh my god. Um, they bring an era of peace on the planet, the aliens that is, and spoiler alert, uh, by the end of the novel, humanity is is essentially over. <laughs> just just a just uplifting go- <laughs> story and <laughs> to serve man. <laughs> um, a lot of the material for this record wasn't played live, but this song "Childhood's End" was for a time in 1972 to early 1973 uh, being featured alongside the Dark Side material when they'd start to play that record. If you listen to the beginning of this track, Pink Floyd would actually recycle the beginning passage on Dark Side of the Moon in the song Time. The little like metronome ticking. Um, They extend it out and and add some elements to it. But it's also interesting if you look at the lyrics of this song because thematically it fits the messages of Dark Side of the Moon a little bit better. Kind of reflecting on life and death and all sorts of things. And that's funny considering that Gilmore wrote the lyrics to the song, but Waters would write everything on Dark Side of the Moon. So I'm I'm curious to, to, to know how much Waters was kind of inspired by the approach that Gilmore was taking to songwriting, at least in terms of kind of cert- certain themes and then kind of taking them and, and running with them. Yeah, I, I, feel, I, feel, I feel like, you know, like I'm not a big Pink Floyd fan, but I actually really like the lyrics to this song. I think that the lyrics are, are poetic and have a statement and a message to make of, you know, pretty, a pretty simplistic thing of just like life is over really quickly and, you know, you should probably appreciate it while you've got it kind of thing, you know, a pretty common trope for, for, for songs and books and movies and everything else. And it's not a traditional format for a song. Like there's no verses and choruses. I feel Mm, like it's more just like he wrote down some lyrics that happened to rhyme and brought it all together into this like one long passage in the song and there's a you know there's an introduction to it and then like he says you know there's some some music and then he says the lyrics basically sings the lyrics it's not like a rap or anything he like <laughs> sings the lyrics and then the, the the song's over it's it's kind of like this this I don't know, just like a quick statement, like being like, this is my song and this is what I want to get across. And I'm going to say it as directly and succinctly as Pink Floyd is capable of doing. (laughs) And uh, I feel like that's an interesting approach. And yeah, you're right. It is kind of uh, cool that to think about the idea maybe that the band members were kind of riffing off each other. Like maybe, you know, David Gilmore wrote this song, Childhood's End, and it had a really interesting like lyrical motif. 
and a, you know, a approach to the lyrics that was interesting. And then Roger Waters was like, hey, this is a good idea. What if we were to take this and expand upon this and make this into something more expansive? Yeah, I feel I, I really feel like if you listen to the song, it sounds to me just like the spiritual predecessor of what would be the Dark Side of the Moon album. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I think this is this, this passage kind of goes along with what you're saying. This is uh, towards the end of the song here. So it's, who are you and who am I to say we know the reason why some are born, some men die beneath one infinite sky? Like, I mean, I feel like that's like, that's pretty dark side, you know? I yeah, mean, that's yeah. that's pretty something that you would, that you would listen to and, and hear or, yeah, or, or at least get the feeling of when you're listening to a dark, you know, dark side from beginning to end. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, mentioning, just picking up on on those lyrics, there'll be war, there'll be peace, but everything one day will cease. I mean, e- even that too, because Roger Waters, as we mentioned, you know, his father dies in World War II, and that's kind of a recurrent theme throughout is kind of mentioning, you know, war and people, you know, unfairly put in those circumstances. Yeah, just it, it's weird because Pink Floyd is such a a dark band, I feel like, lyrically, but it doesn't make you feel depressed in listening to it. I think there's just this kind of like acceptance of, you know, here's how life is and it's unfair and these are things that happen that most of us probably, you know, go through or, or share these experiences. And yeah, it's 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 over, you know, all all too quickly. And and so it's interesting thinking about I don't know, I I guess who who Roger Waters is as a songwriter is something that didn't really occur to me until we um kind of sat down to do this episode considering he's obviously such a creative force in the band at this time that I found myself thinking more of the later albums and when the band in their early more collaborative period like who is Pink Floyd and it's funny that the Pink Floyd that most people know is sort of the Roger Waters led Pink Floyd I I I I just think it's interesting from just you know uh yeah a, a, a creative perspective just if you go through any like dad's record collection, like he's probably going to have dark side and uh, the wall and then maybe wish you were here. Like that's like, those are the three records that I feel like pretty much every person who says they like Pink Floyd is going to own. Not many people are going to own obscured by clouds and they're going to think of, so, so if they only have those three records to reference dark side, wish you were here and the wall, what they're really imagining when they think of Pink Floyd is they're imagining Roger Waters, especially from a lyrical standpoint, because that's, I I know that's all the lyrics are all written by him on those three records. So really their perception of Pink Floyd is pretty much the, 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 the output of one, only one of the, the major artists in the group so it's interesting to hear like i wonder what they would say if you played somebody who'd only heard those three records if you played them this song i wonder if they would think to themselves wow this fits in really well with all the other songs that i know from those other three records and then you'd surprise them and be like well guess what this one actually was written by one of the guys who didn't write any of the songs that you know yeah like i I think that'd be that'd be pretty interesting and i wonder you know obviously you know asking asking uh david gilmore or roger waters about david gilmore or roger waters is probably <laughs> the worst thing you could probably do but it would be interesting to hear maybe when you know i don't know i guess they probably they're probably calmed down enough they're older guys yeah. now they, they you know whatever. well i mean i i read an interview and you know someone asked david gilmore do you regret not writing you know more songs for the band and writing more lyrics and he says no um and and here's a quote roger wanted to be the guy writing lyrics i was very happy for him to be the guy writing lyrics he was very good at it I didn't feel I was. I wasn't frustrated saying, read these lyrics. I want to put this song on. The way that it happened made sense. Yeah. So, so, uh, so yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's, that's pretty, you know, whatever. But, but I guess it, that, that, 
I, I don't know if that quote even makes it more interesting, the idea that this song kind of connects so well with, I don't know, I, I, I wonder... I wonder now, listening to the song and looking at these lyrics in more in depth, you know, not being a big Pink Floyd fan myself, I, I wonder now what Pink Floyd would have been like if Gilmore had taken over, or not taken over, but but had more been, input. been more of a force. Yeah, 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 in in this in this. I mean, musically output. speaking, they're they're contributing things. Yeah, and then certainly, you know, the 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 Richard Wright kind of contributes less, and Nick Mason contributes less, and becomes just kind of a. a battle of will between right. you know Gilmore and Waters. But yeah, I mean it's really interesting to think about the direction the band took because I feel like the band took like a David Gilmore-ish direction on a lot of the material despite and and I feel like you hear it in the song. Yeah. Like I feel like you listen to the song and for me I feel like this this one maps out where Pink Floyd goes from here despite the fact that Waters is the one kind of like calling the shots. So I guess our question is like was he inspired by you know, this track in particular, or, you know, what about the experience of recording this record or, or like what, what changed? Like, I guess we don't know what. Yeah, we, we, we don't know, but I guess it's interesting to theorize that this song that we're doing as a skipped on shuffle episode, because this song is not a popular Pink Floyd song on, on one of their least popular records. It'd be interesting to, to theorize that this song could be a linchpin for the for the group and could be something that set the group off in a certain type of direction that resulted in Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall and all these super, super famous popular records. It'd, it'd be interesting if this song is skipped on shuffle by so many people, not understanding that it's actually so important to what happened for the group afterward. Now, obviously, we don't know this for a fact. We're just sort of theorizing here or whatever. But I, I don't know. That, that to me would be super interesting if there was... Was, I don't know, imagine like there being a, a, a song by the Beatles that totally changed everything about them and nobody listened to that song. Like that would be an interesting thing to sort of think about for the history of, of, a, of a group as monumentally famous and, and important as, as Pink Floyd. There'll be war, there'll be peace, but everything one day will cease. Obviously, I've mentioned a few times now that I am not a big Pink Floyd fan. Uh, but at the top of the episode, I, I mentioned how I can get a little bit conflicted about that. And I, I, I don't know if this is too strong of a word, but almost sometimes I almost feel like insecure about the fact that I don't like Pink Floyd. I, I, I used to be in a band. I'm a musician. I love music. You know, we do this podcast because both Jason and I are such huge, huge music fans. And I'm always listening to music and trying to find new music that, that, that I enjoy, that, that speaks to me in some way or whatever. And to have Pink Floyd be such a huge monumental influence on so many people and to be so commercially successful and, you know, so, so successful just in the, in, I don't know, just in like society, like we were mentioning before, like you could say dark side of the moon to somebody and they're, they're going to think of Pink Floyd, you know? Like yeah. And, and you had mentioned even the imagery. Yeah. Like, just, it's, just yeah. it's so huge to, to sit there and be like, I don't like, 
like, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm, you know, the only person that, that, you know, what the emperor's new clothes kind of situation where I'm like, like, why don't you, what, what am I missing? You know, like, how do I not see what's going on? And I don't know. I feel like sometimes I get a little weird about it because even more so than like, like, like the Beatles, like I, I'm not a huge Beatles fan, you know, and eventually obviously skipped on shuffle. We'll we'll do do a Beatles episode and we're going to talk about this a little bit longer, but I, I, you know, I'm not a huge Beatles fan, but at the same time, like I understand the Beatles and I understand why people love them so much. It makes perfect sense to me. And I listen to the Beatles and I listen to specific songs that I like, like, like she's so heavy, for example, I'm like, yeah, this song is great. Like, this is awesome. And that just doesn't happen with Pink Floyd. Like for me, I don't know. Like there's no song by Pink Floyd except maybe great gig in the sky. I really like great gig in the sky, (laughs) But, you know, it's like, I, you know, there's no song that I put on by Pink Floyd and I say to myself, like, yes, I am so glad this song is on right now because it's really good. Uh, it's funny. So so yesterday, uh, my girlfriend and I, we were driving to New York City. We were going to spend the day in the city. And uh, I knew I was doing this episode. So I said to myself, you know, I'm going to listen to this album on the way to the city. And so it was me and my girlfriend in the car. We're driving along, listening to the record. And I, I suddenly got this, this, this like, uh, imagery of the band at this time making this record of them like waking up at four in the morning and recording some tracks, like barely awake <laughs> and like laying down these sleepy, sloggy songs and then like going about their day afterwards or whatever. Like, that's kind of how I feel. Like, I feel like there's, I think the thing that makes me not like Pink Floyd is that I get the feeling that they're not very passionate about what they do. And it's like, I know that's not true. Like, I know that they clearly, you know, from reading these, these, the the history and going over all this music and all this stuff, like they're clearly very passionate about their music, but I don't know. I just don't feel it from them. Like, I feel like they're kind of just like half-assing it as they go. And I don't know. I think that that's what, that's what kind of, I don't know, makes them unappealing to me and I just can't get over it. Like as no matter how many times I listen, no matter how many times I try, I just like can't get past it. And like I said, it makes me feel insecure. Like it makes me feel like, you know, I don't want to talk about it. Like, you know, if I'm with somebody who's just like not a big I'm, music person. I'm, I'm going out. I hope no one brings up their play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. seriously. Seriously. Like in the, in the in a certain group of people, like if I'm with a bunch of musicians, like, you know, old band friends or, or whatever, or, or just people that are really into music in general and they start talking about like, oh, you know, Pink Floyd this, Pink Floyd that. Like I almost like slink down oh, into look the darkness. Oh, gotta go. Can't talk about it. Because I don't, you know, then I just feel like the odd man out sometimes you know but but whatever like i said you know we did the doors episode and i definitely came away with a much bigger appreciation for the doors and i'm sure we're probably gonna eventually do an rem episode maybe i'll come away with a better uh thing for (laughs) rem you know but i don't know even even with all this i'm still coming away just being like you know what don't like pink floyd I mean, I get I get that detached feeling. And I feel like, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, I thought a lot about, you know, Roger Waters being kind of the main songwriter and sort of what perspective he brings. And I and I do feel like he I, I mean, even even the themes on a lot of the stuff he writes is about kind of like being attached, being detached um, and kind of emotionally unavailable. And I, I don't know if it's just because that is kind of what he's writing about or as you mentioned, like maybe that does come through the music more than, you know, I, I, I kind of know, I feel like there is some Pink Floyd filter. Um, I wrote this down. I, I, you can, you can think of it what you want. I'd had, I had had a couple beers and and Heidi, Heidi was like, you sound like an inebriated person, but I was like, no, this like makes sense to me about, you know, how I think of Pink Floyd. And 
Um, I wrote down Pink Floyd songs. They sound like aliens finding some kind of like primary documents, like journals of experiences that people had. And then they like they kind of know the relative history of humanity. And through that, they're trying to kind of through these memories, they're kind of trying to figure out like who people are. So I feel like that that kind of makes sense with that detached like kind of. Because, yeah, I don't know. There just always seems to be sort of like a space and a distance between. And then, I mean, it might just be the 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 style of, you know, the the singers. Like, I mean, I, I love David Gilmour and I like Roger Waters, but they're not the greatest singers. I mean, they're they're competent and I feel like it fits in well with what they do but they might not be the most expressive, you know, through the lyrics. And I mean, that's what I think brings most people to Pink Floyd too, is a little less um, what's in the lyrics and a lot more of the music. It's kind of where you can get something where you can throw some headphones on and uh, for 45 minutes or, you know, an hour really like drift off into space. I mean, this is kind of like spacey, trippy music that definitely sends you somewhere else for a while you know not doesn't feel like you're on this planet i mean space rock gets kind of thrown around which you know it, it is but i i feel like more so for this band uh, being such an album oriented band it works for them um, my introduction to pink floyd was you know i i bought dark side of the moon and i remember the first time listening through it and i, I don't know if other people tend to do this when they first buy a record but put it in and I would listen to the first like, you know, 10, 15 seconds of each track uh, on the album before I would start from beginning to end just to oh, kind of give yeah. my, that's just, interesting. Yeah. Just to kind of give myself like a little preview. Like what, what am I in for? Little trailers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I remember buying dark side and putting it on and being like, I don't know what I just spent my money on exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but then, but then when you listen to it from beginning to end, you're like, Oh, this goes a lot of places, but it makes a lot more sense. And I feel like Pink Floyd really helped me understand, like, I need to listen to albums from beginning to end to kind of get the best sense of what someone's doing. And I I feel like probably I'm not the only person that Pink Floyd helped make make me a fan of albums from beginning to end. I feel like Pink Floyd forced me to listen to all of their records from beginning to end. So I got into the habit of doing that, whereas I feel like a lot of people, you know, listening to a band, it's like, oh, I'll listen to, you know, one or two tracks. And especially then, and today then, with, yeah, especially, with streaming yeah. services and everything. And yeah. then to, to kind of get a sense of the band. And I feel like for Pink Floyd, you know, it forced me all the time. I need to listen to everything from beginning to end. And I think also, as I mentioned earlier, getting the Shine On box set, realizing there were all these gaps in the Pink Floyd history that I had uh, made me more of a completist and filling in like those gaps. Like I, I struggle to listen to, to bands where I, I need to accumulate everything first. Yeah. I need to know what all the albums are, what order they're in before I start to like delve in and listen to stuff. I hate when I like miss an album or miss a track. I just feel like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not good enough because I'm not <laughs> there yet to, to listen to everything. And I feel like, again, for Pink Floyd, I think it just made me appreciate kind of just a, a band's whole output, even if I don't like some of the albums, which, you know, for Pink Floyd, there are, there are some. Even the for, band will admit. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the band, yeah, the band will be like, I don't even know what was what was going on. I yeah, don't know why we're not going to include this with the yeah. box set. With, with our retrospective career-length box set, we're literally going to take this album out because it's not important. Yeah, and I, I feel like the band has done a good job kind of curating 
what is their best material and showcasing that. And that's why I think the band is so enduring as it is, because I think if you, you know, left out some of these other strings and threads of things that they had done and heard them, you'd be like, well, this isn't the band that I know and revere. And maybe, maybe, maybe because I mean, there's, there's other reasons you've given, (laughs) but maybe because you've heard those other things, you're like Pink Floyd isn't the be all end all because they have these other records where clearly no one knows what they're doing. Right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe if I, 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 I was able to sort of put on like blinders and only focus on the stuff that was, you know, really, really good, you know, like the dark side and the wall and all this stuff. If I only focused on that and just ignored the fact that there was all this other music that, you know, is not so good that like, like we said, even the band members themselves will, I mean, I think I read a quote saying that like nobody in the band likes Adam Hart mother. Like they're like, literally, I hope I never have to hear this record again in my life. So it's like, even they admit like we did some really bad stuff, I guess. Yeah. If I ignored that those things were there, just didn't know then maybe it would, it would up my appreciation. I mean, I probably still wouldn't be a big fan, but <laughs> I might like them a little bit more and I might feel more justified in, you know, whatever. I, I don't know. But yeah, it is interesting to mention that, you know, a band with such a convoluted history. I mean, you, we went over the history of the group and like, you know, there's all these band members leaving and all this infighting and all this. Trying to trying to figure out who contributed what. To, yeah, yeah, all this turmoil like resulted in this really messy career, this really messy history of music that sometimes makes sense, sometimes doesn't. I, I, yeah, it, 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 that might be a detraction. It might be something that, but it also, in, in some respects, it might be an interesting thing where, you know, I feel like, when you have an artist like Fiona Apple who releases a record like when she's ready, you know, and and you know because she spent so much time crafting this record, so much time inputting these songs together, you know that this is going to be a refined statement from her that took her years to make. So it's like you can listen to all of Fiona Apple's albums and be like, wow, every single one of these albums and every single one of these tracks is good. There might be some that are better than others, but everything is good. And that might be almost, I don't know, not real. Like, cause where are all the other songs? Where are all the bad songs? Everyone's mm. written a bad song. Everyone's written songs that are just garbage. You know, like where are all those songs? How come I can't hear those? Maybe it would give me more appreciation or more perspective on the great ones. If I could hear some of the shitty Fiona Apple songs, but you can't hear them. Whereas the Pink Floyd, you can hear them. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's kind of why I wanted to do obscured by clouds in particular and childhood's end. Cause I feel like it's, it's, a good track that most people haven't heard for, you know, whatever reason, the fact that, you know, it's a, a soundtrack album, the fact that they recorded it so quickly, the fact that it just gets left off of things. But I feel like the, the track is not only good, but I feel like they, the band still stands by this one as opposed to like a lot of the other material because they released kind of an early days, monstrous box set of, of stuff, um, prior to, I think, 1972, I think it goes up to. And they actually made a promotional video for childhood, Childhood's End. So I feel like that says something about, you know, out of all the material the band had at that time, that they felt like this, this, this song deserves a second life, even if it's through this box set, because it clearly represents something important for the band. It might be the things we talked about. Maybe it's an entirely... Other reason, but but clearly, even the the band is supportive of um, giving the song a, a second listen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Please visit our website at www.skippedonshuffle.com 
for more news about other episodes and our upcoming schedule. We are also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please visit skippedonshuffle.com for links to all of our social media pages.